Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and today begins our Lent series. Today is Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. Lent is traditionally a time of fasting, reflection, and of remembering who we as humans are, what we've done, what we've failed to do, and who loves us in whose path we follow. Fasting or self-discipline, whatever shape these take, depending on the tradition of Christianity to which you belong, provoke these remembrances of our limitations and spur us on towards transformation. Lent is about truthfulness and the places that truthfulness leads us. In Lent, we imitate Christ and his humility by rejecting easy ways to power, domination, and lies about ourselves and about the way the world works. This year's Old Books with Grace Lent series, called A Book That Changed Me, offers four different conversations with guests on a book of their choice that changed them, made them think deeply about transformation, brought them closer to truth. Books can be mirrors. They can help us to consider ourselves in a new light. Books invite us into conversations and reflections we would have not known to participate in without their guidance. Each of the guests in this series has chosen a book that invited them into reflection, remembrance, and self-knowledge. Each conversation is quite different, some more personal, others less, and the books span from the Middle Ages to the 1960s. And if you're inspired to take part in this conversation, I'd love to hear about a book that changed you on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. My first guest of the series is Joy Clarkson, who has chosen to talk about George Eliot's wonderful tale about the avaricious weaver changed by love, Silas Marner. Dr. Joy Clarkson is the author of Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life, and a research associate in theology and literature at King's College London. She received her doctorate in theology from St. Andrews University, where she she researched the ways that we can use art to prepare ourselves for a good death. She hosts a podcast, Speaking with Joy, and is the books and culture editor at Blau Quarterly. Dr. Clarkson, I'm so glad you're here on Old Books with Grace. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Dr. Hammond. Is that how you say your last name? Yes, that is how I say my last name. That is correct. Good job. I get a lot of Hamans or Hamans. Um, and so mm. yeah, it's, it's a surprisingly tricky one. Um, mm. So I ask everybody who comes on the show two questions that are sort of get to know you. The first is, what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why? And don't answer Silas Marner because we'll be talking about that in depth. (laughs) Gosh, that's so hard. Um, There are so many books that were written more than 50 years ago. And I'm really bad at favorites. It kind of depends on my mood. Um, Mm. Okay, the first one that came to my mind which is arbitrary and I might change my mind if you asked me in 30 minutes um, is it can be book, not doesn't have to be novel, right? No, it can be anything. It can be poetry, fiction, nonfiction, okay. whatever you please. 
Um, I think what came to my mind first was Jill Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. Um, mm. It's just a, a beautiful text. I love that it's the first um, book written in English, supposedly, um, by a woman. And I love how relatable and uh, gentle and funny and it feels, even though it's reaching to us across several hundred years, and also how sophisticated it is. Um, mm. so it's a, if anyone hasn't read it it's um these it's a recording of this woman's visions um after a near-death experience of jesus and his love for the world and um it's great that is also my favorite book from more than 50 years ago so excellent oh. choice um, I love Julian. She, uh, I, you know, this series is about a book that changed you or transformed you or a book about transformation and change. And if somebody was to interview me about it, that would be my answer because she has been so powerful in my life. Um, okay. So the second question for you, which literary character do you most identify with and why? And this could be, you know, this doesn't have to be like, Super, a super sophisticated answer. It could be Bilbo Baggins from um, Tolkien, or it could be, you know, anything you like. So what do you think? Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so hard. Um, okay. I, this, this is like a, a complice to myself, I think. Um, I, I think I identify pretty strongly with Harry Vane. I haven't from, uh, from the series by Dorothy Sayers mm, you I know not... you're not the first person to answer that 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 has happened okay. a couple times what, so keep going it's though almost, sorry I interrupted you I why, said, why do you identify with Harriet Vane I said that, that's almost disappointing I'm just like everybody else um <laughs> no I um well I haven't been suspected of murder yet in my life um but Good. positive I think I really enjoy Gaudi Knight I I well first of all she is a academic woman mm-hmm. so there's some kind of experience of that um, she is a mixture of, um, someone who's like in some ways deeply soft and sentimental and, um, you know, uh, in need of love and affection, but also has kind of a keen mind and can be a little bit cynical, which I know people may not know about me, but I feel like the, both of those things exist in me and I, I identify with her. Um, but yeah, so Harriet Vane, or I know this is like very basic, but also Lizzie Bennett. Um, who oh. has a similar dynamic, I think. Yes. But yes. I also feel like I also feel like all bookish women want to say that there was a dinner. So then I also feel a little cringy saying that. But <laughs> it's it so true. And I mean, really, yeah, who doesn't want to be Lizzie Bennett? I mean, <laughs> if you like books and you uh, you are you know, you want to be a clever person, which I do, it's like, yes, of course I want to be Lizzie Bennett. Who wouldn't? Yeah. I mean, I do. Th- I do think she's like. I do feel like we miss the fact that like she's fairly flawed, and that's why you know she's. But <laughs> but but I also identify with her flaws, and I and I like her. So yeah, I see. I thought that I was Lizzie Bennett for a while. I've told this story on the podcast before, but it was a while ago, so I'm going to excuse it. And then I realized I'm actually not Lizzie Bennett. I'm much more of a Mister Darcy, which is kind of unfortunate. But mm. I'm a little bit. Uh, um, not a little bit, a lot of it of an introvert who struggles at parties. And, um, and so, and then I married Lizzie Bennett. My husband is actually Lizzie Bennett. So I was about to ask, is your husband Lizzie? <laughs> he is. He is a clever, funny extrovert who thinks he's right a lot of the time. So, 
sounds Lizzie good, Bennett good. to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had asked you to pick a book that has changed you, transformed you, um, or had an influence like that in your life as this podcast series thinks about turning, conversion, and repentance in Lent. Mm-hmm. And you chose George Eliot's Silas Marner, which I was just delighted when you chose it. I hadn't read it in about two decades. And I was like, yes, I'm so excited to read this again. Um, but before we get in, into Silas Marner and dive into it, um, let's take a moment to just set it in its context. Um who was George Eliot? When did she live? What else has she written? If you could kind of fill in that a little bit for us. Definitely. So George Eliot is a really interesting character. Um, her, her real name is Mary Ann Evans, and she was born in 1819 and died in 1880. So she was kind of alive during those tumultuous, uh, that tumultuous 19th century when a lot was changing, you know, I think we think of ourselves as living in a very tumultuous and um, secular time. But the 19th century in in the UK was both, it had huge reforms, so, you know, she writes about reform bills and stuff um, that were going on in the country. And also church attendance was actually, I think if I'm, I might be making this up, but I don't think I am from an article I read recently at the same level that it is now. So there was also a sense of huge being emptied and, and there being kind of both a lot more lack loss of belief, but also you had the, the rise of the kind of orient um, the origins of evangelicalism um, and people like Wilberforce and all that, and and you also had um, you know the Anglo Catholic movement. So a lot of the things that we're seeing now, you know, these uh, strong pushes for social justice, a lot of secularity, a lot of kind of people veering very far right or very far left was kind of happening all around her. And she was a really interesting figure in that. Um, she grew up in a, in a very um, conservative evangelical, in the true sense of the word, like they would have called themselves evangelical mm-hmm. kind of uh, mm-hmm. family. And she was really devoted to that when she was young. Um, but then she was also very intelligent and bright and she read a lot and um, she kind of had a crisis of faith um, that she never really recovered from. Um, and she, one of the things I always think is super cool about George Eliot is she is actually the person who translated um, both Strauss and Feuerbach into uh, English, who are both really important uh, kind of liberal, liberal, I'm not saying that in the way we use it now, but like the origins of liberal theology, when you come to kind of thinking of Jesus as a historical figure and not a Christ, kind of came from largely from Strauss and Feuerbach, of course, is an important um, philosopher who does not lend himself to like happy Christian um, philosophy, but she was the one who translated those. So she was this intensely intelligent, um, deeply interested in kind of the meaning of life, um, but also deeply wounded by how much she wanted to believe and how dissatisfied she was with what she was offered in the Christian world around her. Um, but I don't think so you could you would kind of call her a ex-evangelical in her own era. Um, <laughs> Quite, quite literally, you know, that, yes. that was her, her, her background. But, and, it, and I think what I love about, I'm no Elliot expert, so I've only read um, Middlemarch and um, uh, what we're about to talk about today, Silas Marner, and then bits of Daniel Deronda. Um, but what I love about her is that she, 
um, she had that crisis of faith and wasn't satisfied. She kind of wasn't given good answers in her mind by the world around her, but she never lost the desire to, Mm. to know God. And there's a story I've heard, and I don't know how true this is, but that even into her later years, she wrote with a crucifix over her, over her desk. Mm. Um, she's also often, and I think that's important to remember that she, she kind of had this loss of faith, but she wasn't, she, she was not a person who was just kind of hardened against it. Another interesting element of her life, which I will say, and then I'll stop babbling about George Eliot. No, this is great. Um, This is such a good contextualizing background on her. I'm fascinated. Keep going. (laughs) Well, and I think it, I think it also definitely plays into some of the themes in Silas Moore. Um, she also, people think of her as like this very, uh, you know, edgy woman because she supposedly lived in an open marriage with this guy who was married for like, I think it was, I think it was like 30 years. It was a long time. Yeah. A very long time. And, um, yeah, George Henry Lewis from, uh, yeah, for 24 years. Um, but contrary to how a lot of people interpret that she considered herself to be married to him. And basically the only reason they weren't married was because, um, was because he couldn't obtain a legal divorce uh, from his wife who left him. And she invests a lot of time in, in his children. And she felt like that, that experience of marriage really transformed her. And there's actually a book coming out from one of my colleagues here at King's College London about her marriage that's coming out in, I think, March um, called The Marriage Question. Um, Writing that one Claire down. Car- Claire Carlisle. Um, so yeah, so that's also an interesting kind of aspect of her life. So yeah, so she's this interesting um, character who's often cast as kind of this, you know, edgy, um, post-Christian in her own world character. But I think she always retained this desire for meaning, for faithfulness in marriage, for um, and also for faith, I think that's a lot. And you see that in her books that they explore really um, genuine Christian faith. And you also see like in Daniel Deronda, um, Jewish faith. So she was really interested in those questions. Mm. And um, yeah, so there's there's our context for George Eliot. She reminds me because she's such an interesting person when you when you hear this context and and think about her life and her wrestling. She was such a wrestler. Um and I mean that as like the highest compliment. Um, but it's it's fascinating because you read something like Silas Marner and and it is just soaked in Christian imagery, Christian themes, um, and and desire. But that was that was uh, super interesting. So t- Silas Marner, let's dive in. For those who haven't read it before, which I feel like the majority of people listening to this podcast have probably at least encountered it in excerpt at some point. Um, but for those who haven't read it before, maybe we could do just a quick little summary of it. And and then why did you pick it? Yeah. Um, so, okay, so I'll give my quick rundown of South Mark. I want to say too, so it sounds like everybody who listens to your podcast are probably all book nerds who read long books. And so it's not scary or whatever but I um like Silas Marner partially because it's very short yes <laughs> um yes so it's like, agreed it's like, <laughs> for those of us who want who want to be George Eliot people but looked at Middlemark Middlemarch and like 
had, had a fainting fit. Um, oh, Silas it's Marner, a brick. It's a brick of a book. So Silas Marner is not. So, so yeah. that's in its favor. Um, yes, yeah, so that's that's in its favor. And also, I read Silas Marner when I was thinking about it when I was like, I think 12. Um, Same. Yeah. And and it was very engaging. And, and I think and I didn't have a great attention span of 12. So um, so Silas Marner is uh, it's this little story um about several things um but it it basically centers around this man silas marner who um was deeply involved in a religious community and then was accused of a crime he didn't commit and was evicted from the community and he uh it just really like wounds him in this deep way um and so he goes away and lives somewhere he's never been and he tries to make a life and um and it's about him so it's about him and him trying to figure out what it means to live after having experienced this deep betrayal mm. and at first thinking he'll never engage with faith ever again um and he kind of copes with this loss in two ways first he copes with it by um, making a lot of money so in a very human way he um he's a weaver and so he he becomes well beloved both as a weaver and a healer. He he learned how to um, make uh, remedies for people from his mother. So he makes a lot of money. He makes this little pile of gold, and um, and then tragedy strikes him again, and and somehow this gold disappears. This huge pile of gold that he's worked on, this thing that has become the only thing he cares about. Um, because he's lost everything else. But then seemingly to replace that pile of gold, he has this mysterious thing happen, which is that this other little pile of gold, this pile of golden curls, this child appears out of nowhere and he raises the child. And then the, the book is kind of about the mystery of where did the gold go and where did the child come from? Um, but it's in loving and raising this child that he comes to kind of be relieved and, and be healed. And, um, and also it's how he comes back to faith um, and to a new faith. And um, so it's this just very, it kind of ends very abruptly and, and um, in a funny way, I feel like it ends in a way that doesn't, it's not just like a perfect happy ending, mm. um, but it is, it is a beautiful story about, about, um, I think, you know, we can, I was actually thinking as I was reading it, because there's so much on the internet these days about deconstructing and this and that. It's a story about that. You know, it's a story mm. about someone who experiences what we would call now religious trauma and who has this real, it's not even a crisis of faith. His faith is, faith is just kind of shot dead almost. Yes. Um, but how he, how he comes to find meaning and value through love um, and, and through loving another person. So that's, that's the flyover. Now, when I reached out to you, why, what made you go, yes, I'm going to pick Silas Marner, especially, you know, given that you read it for such a long time ago, has it played, has, have you returned to it? Has it played an ongoing sort of role of being a companion in your thoughts and faith and formation as you've grown or what's your story with Silas Marner? Well, um, 
I'm not going to lie that part of the reason I chose it was because I thought, well, that book did change my life and I would really like to read it again. And this would give me a good reason to read it again. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that was part of the reason. Um, I think that part of the reason it changed me, I really, I read it. And then I also, this is a really funny thing, but there used to be a Focus in the Family radio drama um, audiobook of it. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? No, but it's I so- I was wondering if maybe you were going to mention the the wishbone, which is quite different, but the wishbone episode of Silas Marner, which I was influenced by. But <laughs> set, we could set that aside. It's neither here nor there. But yeah, back to what you were saying. Um. Yeah. No. So I um. I just I like read the book, and I also listened to that audiobook a lot in my childhood, um, and early adulthood, and what impression did it make on me? For one thing, I think it was one of the first books I read that was kind of more grown up, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. You know, it was out of the fairy yes. tales. and the Which the is Narnia. very important at that age. Like a very, I, the first book I read yeah. that felt more grown up was Pride and Prejudice. And I felt so yeah. like it, it was a huge turning point in my reading career. Was that how it felt for you reading Silas Martin? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It definitely, it definitely felt like a turn and turning point felt like I was a grown up. Uh, but it also like, I, I think just like, you know, you said you were talking about um, turning points and repentance. And mm-hmm. I feel like one of the things that this book does that's so compelling and that was compelling to me at the time was that I was kind of having this growing sense that sometimes stories weren't as neat and tidy as people want them to believe right so you grow up and you hear I was a terrible sinner and then I became a Christian and then everything was okay and this is actually a book where someone numerous characters are quote-unquote terrible sinners and um some of them even repent and things aren't ever okay um but it's still good they repented and I think that that kind of moral complexity made a big impression on me and then I think also I've always been kind of a a doubter and a um I think I have at various points in my life kind of danced on the edge of agnosticism. And so to read the story of someone to well, I think to read the experience, the thing that I felt, especially in college, I think, was that I had a really hard time believing. Hmm. But it wasn't that the, you know, used to have these silly quotes in church that I'd be like, well, if someone's doubting their faith, it's because they want to sleep with their boyfriend. And I was like, <laughs> I don't, I was like, that's not it for me. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, I don't even have a boyfriend. And also um, like, I'm just worried that maybe there's no meaning in the universe. You know? um, <laughs> like, I think so it's it bigger kind of, than that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, possibly. And so I think that to read a, a book where it, com- it showed somebody who had that experience of losing their faith when they really wanted to keep it mm. was somehow deeply consoling for me. And then also to see that faith can be recovered even mm. after that experience of, of loss was just really impactful and meaningful to me. Mm. That's, um, no, I have a lot of thoughts. There's, that's really lovely. And I think there's a lot of freedom in seeing complex narratives that are working at things. Um, and and I, I think George Eliot is a master of that. Um, we see that in, in, in her other books as well. And I'm, so I'm struck by a couple things. 
One is that you've put your wrestling with George Eliot and with um, Silas Marner and also George Eliot herself into such an interesting context in relation to um, to the church today. Um, and so you, you, you have used like relevant phrases like exvangelical and um, deconstruction. And I think those are resonating. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, and another thing that I was thinking about while I was reading, because I was struck by, by that as well in this rereading when I was preparing for our conversation, but I was thinking uh, along a slightly different line, but I think deeply related, which is um, alienation. This is a novel mm-hmm. of alienation yes. and then of transformation through community, um, which we we can sometimes think about that it's just Epi, the child, who converts and I'm using converts in scare quotes but who who has that transformative effect on Silas Marner but actually it's that Epi opens the door for him to rejoin a full community um which I think is I had kind of forgotten about that emphasis and I, I find that really interesting in relation to some of what you're bringing up and mm-hmm. um, in this reading, I was so struck by that because uh, I think I, I had just read yesterday a survey about um, isolation and alienation in our in mm-hmm. in culture today and how people have less friends than they've ever had before. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm just sort of meandering on this because I'm so struck by it. But as you were rereading this time, what really... Did you also notice those themes? What was really standing out to you as you were revisiting Silas Marner now? Yeah, I, I mean, very, very similar and uh, similar themes. And um, yeah, and I think so to put these two things together, um, kind of that sense of a loss of faith, but also the loneliness and the community. Um, I feel like kind of the linchpin of these two things in the story um who both kind of offers silas community and and offers him faith in a really beautiful and simple way is i'm forgetting her name but the dolly winthrop some ways yes dolly winthrop because i I was like i wrote her name down because i was like i'm gonna forget it if i (laughs) if i try to have a conversation but i was so struck by her role this time in a way that i was not as like a 12 year old but keep going no, so the thing the thing I love about Dolly Winthrop is that she is the one who kind of beckons him back into community and who offers this really generous, costly companionship to him through the process of raising a child. You know, he's think about the like mid 40s men, you know, um, just suddenly having a baby to take care of. Right. And she she does everything that that he needs to do for her to, for him to be able to raise her. And um, and she does it because she has this faith and the faith is not very complicated. Like she, you know, he has this kind of like, how could God have allowed this bad thing to happen? And she thinks and thinks and thinks about it and, and, and really takes it, takes his questions really seriously and never really resolves it. Um, but has this sense that, that God is good and, and that, one that if God really was good and, and loving and if you really read the Bible he wouldn't act like this and I think part of what I loved about that is and this has been part of my own journey and and it has been when you have these experiences of doubt or whatever 
it, you, you feel like you need to like find a big intellectual resolution point. Um, but there's a great little idea in a, in a French philosopher named Paul Ricoeur where he talks about the second naivete and where you, where you kind of go from naivete to you know, knowledge and doubt. And then you kind of can be able to come back to a place of, of believing in that simple and childlike way, even though you experience all these things. And I feel like Dolly kind of offers that to him. Mm. And, and I wanted to read a passage that really stuck out to me that kind of showed that way in which it was through community and through her her concrete love, you know, she, to me, if you've read Middlemarch, of course you have that famous last passage where it says, you know, it's for the great good of the world, um, for people who rest in unvisited tombs, um, yes. you know, and who live the hidden life. And Dolly to me is, she is that kind of character. She's yes. not someone who's going to have some big impact in the world, but she has this gentle, quiet, um, unflinching generosity. And it's through both her faith and her generosity that are, they're not separate and they're, they're kind of intertwined that he's able to, to come back to a place of resolution. And I'm almost done talking. Sorry. This is like a, a big long. Um, no, no, it's great. And I'm, um, I'm eager to see what passage you're talking about because I also was like, if we're not, uh, I have a passage that I'm, I'm curious yeah. if it's the same one. <laughs> so, so if you think about this, I think I think I had because I've just been seeing all of this news online and, and ways people are talking about this. People talk about religious trauma, and trauma is something you experience that you don't know how to integrate into your your life, right? And so, for Silas, that's this experience of betrayal, um, of being accused of something he didn't do, of being kicked out of his. But that's this, in a true sense, um. It's a trauma. It's something you can't integrate. It's this sense of disunity, this sense of brokenness. Yes. And um, I love in the middle of the book, there's this kind of almost unremarkable description of him going from that to a place of being a full member of the community, being loved, and even believing in God to the extent that he kind of puts it against another character, you know, in this very strong way. But this is how um, how that that process is described. It says. He recovered a consciousness of unity between his past and present. Mm -hmm. That sense of presiding goodness and the human trust that comes with all pure peace and joy had given him an impression that there had been some error, some mistake that had thrown that dark shadow of the days of his best years. And as it grew more and more easy for him to open his mind to Dolly, he gradually described all that he could communicate to her of his early life. And I just loved that that's literally a description of something moving from trauma and integration. You know, he says mm. he recovered a sense of unity and that that came from being able to, to be open and connected and in community with, with this person. And that there's this profundity, just being able to be heard and seen and tell your story to someone, even if they can't stitch it back together, even being able to do that at the beginning of that unity being granted again. Mm, that's a lovely passage. And I think a beautiful encapsulation of kind of the whole arc of Silas Marner, which is about reintegration from brokenness. Um, and in a, in a subtle, sometimes confusing and, uh, not always clear cut way, um, which I so appreciate. I was wondering if you were going to uh, go to the passage where Dolly brings 
Silas the cakes, the little cakes that um, she's she's bringing him uh, these cakes that have letters pricked on them and she can't read and silas can barely read um but they have ihs on them which is the uh the old abbreviation for jesus that was stamped on eucharist um pieces of bread uh in the middle ages that dolly had learned from her mother and her mother before and her mother before Mm. And um, what I love in that passage is that it's this moment of um, of communion and neither of them mm-hmm. fully understand it, but it doesn't need to be understood. It, it, what happens is that they're sharing this moment. And actually, Silas is extremely uncomfortable because Dolly has showed up to help him in, in his uh, vast confusion of being suddenly, um, you know, being alone. But and without his his money too um but it's a beautiful little moment of um togetherness beyond an understanding um where you don't you you aren't able to explain it and in fact it's just pure gift um and it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't even <laughs> feel that way in the moment but then it leads into into other things um well, so I, I love that with the one you chose I love that. And I love that too, because it's kind of like symbolically, she's literally giving, she's literally giving. Yes. Yes. She's like, it's like she's administering. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she is the hands and feet of Christ in that moment, bringing Mm -hmm. his body into the extreme loneliness and cold solitude of, of Silas Marner, who lives um, kind of apart from the village. Um, has intentionally sequestered himself because he's been so wounded by the community that he uh, grew up in. Yeah. So oh, it's beautiful. Um, well, another thing that I found really interesting as I was rereading and wondering what you had thought about it is that um, it's a work that almost feels anti-Victorian at times because I, I, I'm not a Victorianist, but I associate a lot of Victorian literature with industry, production, um, you know, uh, work. And this mm-hmm. is about how Silas Marner was kind of a- addicted to his work and had to create um, space, <laughs> a Sabbath in his habits um, when this, when Epi comes into his life and because he had just so devoted himself to the sort of making of money and the, not even for the consumption of money, but just to have it. And I was really struck by it in this reading as, as George Eliot's resistance to the ongoing kind of industrialization of Victorian society and how familiar that felt at, to to me today, again, another point of connection of like, oh, wow, the the creeping in of productivity and good use of your time into everything, into money making um, and this resistance against it in really interesting ways. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that's also really beautifully. She's so good, not just at telling you things, but also giving you images to see that. And I think that's beautifully kind of illustrated in the two piles of gold that he yes. has and that he associates himself as he in his mind is like 
my gold has been stolen, but I've been given this new pile of gold, which is the curls on Epi's head. And, um, but that's, I think, a really striking contrast between are we gold, are we money centered? Are we gold centered? Are we human centered? Are we people centered? Mm. And, um, and I think there's also something kind of beautiful about, or interesting about how Silas Marner kind of, we get the impression that he, that he's close to blind because of all of the intense work he's done. But as he gets older, it's kind of like that. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much, but I, I don't think I am. Um, this physical blindness caused by overwork gives way to a spiritual sight, you know, that he can now actually yeah. see what is valuable and what is worth worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know George Eliot's kind of stance on, um, on industrialization, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't shock me. Yeah. I just thought it was such a thoughtful take on, so, so one of the ways that Silas's coldness and isolation shows itself is that he does, he never stops working. Um, mm-hmm. He's always, to use the modern parlance, grinding, you know, he's constantly <laughs> grinding. Um, rise and grind. <laughs> rise and grind. That is Silas. Um, and, and part of his learning how to love this child is learning how to not do that. Um and I, I think that fe- that feels deeply related to this sort of returning t- to community, resisting alienation that Elliot is so interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you um, were almost out of time here, and I do want to say um, thank you so much for coming on, but also to ask for uh, listeners interested who haven't had the privilege of... Um, reading your work or uh, following you, where can folks find you online? I am on, let's see. Um, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I think all of those I'm join us the brave, um, which I picked as a username when I was, I think I was 15 and it hasn't <laughs> changed since. So J J O Y N E S S T H E B R A V E. And then I also have a Substack, which uh, is just Joy Clarkson at Substack. And then my podcast is Speaking with Joy, which I still post on about once a month. Um, but I'm slightly less regular than I used to. But there are many, many archives through which people can listen if they are, um, if they desire to do so. Fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Clarkson. I really appreciate it. It's been great to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and I would love to hear from you if you wanted to share a book that changed you as well. If you'd like to read more of my writing and hear more about what I've been up to with medieval literature, you can subscribe to my three free monthly Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond, at gracehammond.substack.com. I'd also deeply appreciate it if you rated and or reviewed the podcast on the platform of your choice. It helps me out a lot. Next time, in two weeks, we will hear about another book that changed me. Dr. Jason Baxter will come to talk about Dante's Inferno. Thanks again for listening. Oh,